Okay. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I was getting better, and then that Tuesday, all that dust, just all back. So I lost my voice, actually, Thursday afternoon. Thir Thursday morning class, it was halfway there. So I know you guys are like, why didn't his voice stay lost? Uh, but uh, it did not, so... Glad you didn't go for two hours like this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last week we jumped into <clears throat> Psalm 82 a little bit. I have one of those sheets up here. Uh, Psalm 82. And that section, while we won't come back to it today, uh, is a place that we'll jump back to a couple different times. Uh, Psalm 82, 1 through 8. I don't have last week's sheet with me. What were our questions uh, at the end of last week's? Did anybody bring it with you? I saw one. I didn't get the question. Uh, oh, do you need a column more? Sure. Yeah, it doesn't have the questions on it. Uh, okay. The questions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Reasons we might hesitate to study this subject and then texts that you might find interesting uh, when it comes to this subject. Uh, so what might be some hesitations with the actual study of spiritual realm as a topic? It's boring. It's boring? boring? Yeah, it could be. I hope not. Anybody who thinks it is actually boring has never studied it. Uh, but that might be a reason. I agree. No, I'm with you. I know, I know that's not how you feel about it. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say more like overwhelming. Okay, yeah, uh, it can be an overwhelming thing. Um, uh, if it wasn't before, I hope Psalm 82 kind of gives that a little bit of, you know, what in the world is that? Uh, and maybe a little more uh, overwhelming nature to it. But it's it, there is a, just like everything else, there are threads that will follow uh, and kind of simplify that. I would say uh, probably a uncomfortable sense to some people because anytime you start talking about the unseen, this spiritual realm part. We've seen other groups who have taken it so far that we're uncomfortable talking about some of those things sometimes because of our lack of understanding of that, or we don't want to be perceived as that. Okay, yeah, a couple things there. Uh, uncomfortability uh, and perception. Some of the uncomfortability being, you know, how... We, we have to be careful to only go as far as the text allows and not further than that uh, and work to keep things within their contexts and times and all of this sort of thing. Um, hopefully as we go through and kind of follow a timeline, we will see some trends with these patterns as well and that'll help, I think, keep us grounded. Um, but there is some amount of uncomfortability with saying things like there's stuff that's here that I can't see that is actively doing things in this world. And how far does that go? And what does that mean? And am I starting to sound like, you know, uh, these types of things exist that, you know, crazy people say or things like that? Uh, you know, there's you have to be careful not to tip the scale too far. And then there's a perception of. What are people going to think if I say I believe this thing? You know, are they going to think that we're off this end or off that end or not far enough or whatever? Okay, what else? Kind of leaves you with more questions than answers. Okay, yeah, it might leave you with more questions than answers, yeah. What else? Yeah, no, no, you Oh, is it, well, people think like paranormal and ghosts. Have okay, you seen a yeah. ghost? Have you seen paranormal? And that just goes places that we really don't really sure. want to go. 
Yeah, there's a fascination about this topic for sure, uh, but it's very easy to bring the topic up and then springboard really far to some other thing uh, without doing the kind of in-between stuff. Uh, and that's where stuff things just really get off the rails. Um, so we, we can talk about those things, but we need to have uh, all that in-between uh, in place as well. Okay, any others with that question? It can be hard and confusing, for sure. Okay, it can be hard uh, or confusing, and, and that's definitely definitely the case. I think some of that is the lack of familiarity with uh, the topic and texts and things uh, that's going to make it difficult, because it's like learning a whole new uh, <laughs> section of the Bible in some places. Uh, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe there are some texts that you already have in mind that are unseen realm, spiritually realm oriented, uh, that have always been interesting to you, uh, and maybe some of the passages you'll bring up here are ones that will, uh, maybe they're more touched on than I thought. So, uh, are there any texts or, you know, events, if you can't tell me what it is, that's fine, but some events, biblically, that are uh, spiritually oriented, uh, that are just very interesting to you? Well, you got the book of Revelation. Okay, yeah. You just start there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'm teaching at the end of August, yeah. I think, is when I start that, because it was requested. <laughs> the same reasons that we just listed a moment ago, difficult, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, Revelation, uh, as a book, uh, the illustrations and all of us, the, the language that's used is very spiritually oriented, uh, which makes it interesting, but as we've seen for a long time now, uh, leaves room for people to do wild stuff with it. And make a lot of money selling books and things like that. So, okay, what else? Open his eyes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Various various interactions with the prophets. Uh, like we, as we're reading through, uh, we have very straight narrative. This is how the story works, and you went from here to here and did this thing, and then you get moments that are. You know, excuse me, what, what are we looking at? Why all of a sudden did we have, uh, you know, we're, we're opening our eyes, we're seeing this here, and chariots of fire, and there's angels here doing this, and, uh, okay, where did that come from? Uh, and how does all of that fit in? Okay, what else? Other interesting passages? Daniel. Hey, Daniel. That's why that's we're teaching on Thursday mornings, <laughs> mostly in preparation for Revelation, and because Ava suggested it, nobody else suggested anything uh, for me to teach. So, uh, but going through Daniel, and there's a lot of those moments of this is very straightforward, and then there's a lot of chapters that are what is happening here, uh, what what is going on, uh, and that's it's got several chapters that are pretty interesting. Okay, any others? Like. Um... Seers, uh, soothsayers, the, the speaking of the dead. Okay, yeah. Um, various, uh, just the labels of seers and soothsayers and things, whether we see them doing anything or not. We do have an example of someone being called forth from the dead in the Old Testament, and it's just strange all around uh, with the, you know, the Witch of Endor and all this stuff. There's just moments like that. Okay? <laughs> Yeah, just demon possession in general. We read about it in the New Testament quite a bit, which should be a tell to us that that's important. Uh, that's there as frequently as it is, but because it's there as frequently as it is, we kind of read through it and go, uh, not happening now, but I guess that was a thing that happened anyway. We'll keep going. Uh, but that's very weird to us. That's, that's, uh, that's an uncommon uh, kind of idea to our mind, not to them, but uh, to our mind. Uh, and it's certainly interesting. 
Any some, others? We'll some cover. of the events that happened to Job. Okay, yeah, some of the events that happened to Job. That whole the whole premise of that book uh, just begins with the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord and having this discussion uh, about a, a faithful person of God. Interesting. It's weird. Go ahead. I had one of the situations that always fascinated me, and I believe it was Elisha, and arguing with somebody, well, the, all these people against us, and then he opened the eyes and sees this big army all yeah, yeah. around them. Yeah. Beings. Some of these we're going to deal with specifically. I know that will be in Daniel. Um, there's an event with uh, Micaiah the prophet uh, in Second Kings. Second Kings or First Kings. Uh, read them both. They're both good. Uh, give you a lot of information about the Bible. Uh, it's in one of the kings. That's one of those instances that's very, very unique, but it's not the only place something like that occurs. It's just very descriptive uh, about things. We'll jump back into Psalm 82 when we get there, by the way. Uh, but we'll look at some of those very specific events throughout the Old Testament, uh, and, as well as demon stuff in the New Testament, like where they come from. Uh, or at least where's the thought about where they came from and all of that. Before we can do any of that, last week we had to talk about why this subject was important to study anyway. Uh, this week, uh, before we actually get into the text, uh, and I, I mentioned Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, Genesis 11 uh, as the first places we'll go, and that's over the next couple of lessons. Uh, before we can do that, uh, we need to have an understanding about the physical world itself and how various places uh, continually pop up uh, throughout not just not just the biblical literature, <laughs> just also uh, the ancient Near East, which is the culture of the Old Testament, uh, the ancient Near East literature, other places uh, that talk about certain physical locations as uh, we'll say where heaven and earth meet kind of thing. Okay, We're not talking about like somebody sitting on the beach and going, ah, this is heaven. Uh, that's not <laughs> what we're talking about. Uh, they had kind of this mindset of, and I'm not saying that this is actually the case and how it worked and all that stuff. We'll, we'll talk through this. But they had um, a mindset of when you are in these types of locations, there is... Uh, I'm trying to think. You, you've probably seen this concept in, in movies uh, or shows before. Uh, these places where the separation between uh, physical and spiritual is, you know, at its thinnest. Or these are the places where uh, these two things touch together and all that sort of stuff. Specifically, mountains, gardens, temples, and we'll talk about why temples are so important, uh, as well as the wilderness. Uh, those are physical locations that are given a heavy spiritual meaning. Uh, we're starting with this idea. Within, cultural, within cultures, different things, uh, gestures, places, numbers, etc., uh, are ascribed certain meanings. Uh, one thought was, uh, the uh, fingers on my hand are fingers on my hand. They do what they're supposed to do. God put them all there. Uh, not one of them is more evil than the other. However, if I were to... Uh, hold up my middle finger and point it at you, you would probably go, okay, we need to have a talk with this uh, with this man and figure out why he's doing that. Or if I just specifically looked at one of you and held that finger out, you'd go, did I do something? Why is he mad at me? Why is he using the middle finger? Well, it's not any more worse than any of the other ones 
aside from the cultural importance that has been placed on it uh, of being a bad finger. Uh, I will not show you uh, that, uh, I, think you, I think you agree uh, with that idea. That's true of all sorts of things. That's true of numbers. There, there are importance placed on numbers within, uh, within the Old Testament and New Testament. There are certain numbers that, rec- uh, that continually pop up. Uh, now, that's one of those places where somebody will see a number and then just go way over here uh, without doing kind of the work in between. You have to be careful with it. Uh, but numbers are significant uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, and that's true of, of places as well. And that's the, the culture around it, uh, ascribing that importance. The Bible places importance on certain spaces. Uh, we'll, call, we'll call it, it's been called sac- sacred spaces, it's been called cosmic geography, you know, whatever. Uh, but a lot of these spiritual events that we're going to discuss are going to take place around uh, mountains or wilderness or... Uh, in garden places or mountain garden places where those ideas are combined together, which is often the case, uh, or temples, which we'll see in a little bit, uh, combine those ideas as well. Uh, mountains and gardens. Uh, wilderness is the bad one. Mountains and gardens tend to be good, but the whole idea with the mountain, and we'll look at a number of passages this morning, uh, time permitting, uh, and... Uh, see why that's the case, how often hills and mountains are used as an important place. They're often good, but more of the point is mountains are where you can encounter God, that sort of thing. That does not mean skip Sunday, go up to the mountains because God's there. That's not, uh, that's not what we're talking about uh, here this morning. Okay. Uh, first, let's talk about localization. This is foreshadowing a little bit ahead of where we're going to go. Uh, when I taught this on Thursday mornings, these classes were in a bit of a different order. I told them on that Thursday morning class that they were guinea pigs because I'm not sure how exactly the order to present. Uh, so we're swapping around a little bit, uh, but we'll foreshadow a little bit of what we're talking about. Localization there on, on page number one. As we talk about these sacred spaces and places, keep in mind, not our last lesson, the disinheriting of the nations at the Tower of Babel. God is going about reclaiming the nations. That's Psalm 82, a passage we're familiar with now somewhat, uh, but Deuteronomy 32, we'll talk about that in uh, a couple weeks. Uh, These are entities that God is going, there are entities God is going to reclaim from, okay? We're going to deal with that next week. The people of the ancient Near East, that's what A&E stands for, the rest of the paper, uh, believe that gods were localized, okay? A very important idea. This is true of the Jewish people a lot of the time as well. Uh, They were a part of that culture. They thought a lot of the way that that culture did, unfortunately. Uh, And there are often things that God does that break that idea, and they still have trouble. Uh, This is how the culture believes, and so they had trouble breaking from uh, that kind of mindset. Uh, They believed that gods were in one location or over a certain thing. If you go look at uh, various mythologies, just pick one uh, and go through the list of their gods, those gods will be over certain things. Some will have greater jurisdiction than others, uh, but generally speaking, uh, if you if your primary god was the god of the sea, uh, guess where you want to do your battles, guess where you want to live by, all of that stuff. You're going to want to live by the sea, you're going to want to have sea battles, you're going to be a seafaring group. 
where do you not want to have your fights? You don't really want to go up into the mountains or things like that. Because if you're fighting against this nation over here and they have the god of the mountains, you know, you're at a huge disadvantage there. That's just the way they thought. Everything that they did was uh, patterned around the spiritual kind of idea. Uh, and if things weren't going well, it was, okay, well, our one of our lesser gods, the one of crops and all this, or rain or fertility or whatever, uh, is upset with us. And so we need to have sacrifices. We need to do this. And that'll sort the problem out, hopefully. And we see that sort of behavior uh, from various people within the Old Testament, but it's just true within mythological history. People were doing those things uh, for the gods. Uh, they believed their gods were in one spot. They believed their gods were over certain things. Uh, and that's just how the culture viewed all of this. Uh, the Jewish people believed in this one God, this God overall. But there were several times where they treated him as if, okay, well, he's in the temple. The temple is the only place that he can be. That, that's it. You know, he's not going to be outside of those bounds. Uh, Ezekiel seems to be pretty... Uh, alarmed by this idea of God approaching him on the banks of the shore in Babylon, going, this is about, this isn't Israel, you're not, how are you here? This isn't your place. God's God overall. It's, it's all his. It all belongs to him. But they had trouble with that concept. Uh, they wanted to be back in the temple. That's where God was. Uh, when they carry the ark out into battle, why are they carrying the ark out into battle? Because, yeah, we're taking God's presence with us. So dumb. Like, they have all this history of God's with you. You don't even need that big of an army. You're going to be fine, you know, with what you have. Uh, but they just couldn't register it as time went on. They ended up losing that ark. Uh, and there were some fun travelings that happened with that ark. I wonder if that has anything to do with what we're talking about uh, in one of our lessons later. Okay. So they believe that gods are localized. They placed great importance then on various spaces, these various physical locations. And that's where you have what we'll call an overlap uh, of heaven and earth. Now, we need to understand that that overlap is, is everywhere. Uh, we should not think of spiritual realm in terms of there's physical and there's spiritual, and these, these two things are separate, and we're dealing with physical, and one day we'll deal with spiritual, uh, but there are the, the, the spiritual very much affects now, and we'll see that more as we go through very much overlap in all of these sorts of things. That's important for us to understand the enemy side of things, but it's also important for us to understand as God's kingdom people bringing the kingdom to uh, the earth that there's this overlap idea and uh, what that really means about carrying the kingdom along with us. Okay, we need to move. Like, we actually need to talk about some of this stuff. And we're going to run out of time. Let's talk about mountains. Mountains were the places that people traditionally did not live, so naturally this is the home of the gods. It's a little harder to build your home on top of a mountain, less so now, uh, but still has its difficulty. We just have, you know, technology and stuff. It's not that people didn't go up there or things like that, uh, but those were, you know, way up there and I'm way down here, that sort of thing. Uh, and so that's where the home of the gods tended to be. Uh, you might think about uh, Mount Olympus within Greek mythology. That's where the gods are. This insanely high, tall mountain, all of this stuff. Uh, there are teachings in other mythologies about 
uh, the underworld and how you access those things from the physical earth, you know, going, like going through a tunnel into the uh, dead spiritual world, uh, those could be under mountains oftentimes. Just mountains are where the, or the, if the gods are at the top of the mountain, then the bad place is, you know, under the mountain. Uh, and that happened a lot. It was very frequent. And that's just how they, they thought. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, doesn't really matter. We're trying to understand what they thought, and then we'll work from there. Uh, you were limited in how high you could go on the mountains in the ancient Near East. <coughs> Equipment, difficulty, all that. Making mountains a perfect getaway uh, to leave annoying human beings. And I say annoying human beings because in most religious cultures, the gods hated humans. They were better than you. Uh, they don't want anything to do with you. Uh, and so they're going to be places that you cannot touch and all of this stuff. And if they wanted to interact, it would be on their terms, uh, not the humans' terms. They offered sacrifice, the humans offered sacrifice to the gods. The gods might come down and they can do whatever they want because they're the gods and they're better than you. Like that's the, that was the belief. That's just how it was. Uh, and so they're up in the high places that can't be touched. Uh, in addition to this, mountains touched the heavens, just physically speaking, right? The top of the mountains are going up towards heaven. They're pointed towards heaven. Uh, pyramids are constructed the way that they, they were. Ziggurats as well, which are similar, uh, but a little different. Uh, were constructed the way that they were to kind of mimic this mountain idea. Uh, my understanding is that uh, the dead buried inside would then be able to spiritually ascend up this human-made mountain to wherever they're going to go. Uh, so this idea of mountains is just persistent in all these places. Hey, now let's get into Bible a little bit. You have all of these on your sheet. Feel free to open your Bible if you have. Uh, these are all ESV. I encourage looking at several translations uh, when you're doing studies. Some of these will be pretty straightforward, though. Uh, Exodus 3, 1 and 2. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. Um, okay, so you have here God meeting with uh, Moses at this time of the Israelites are crying out for help, uh, and God seeks to deliver them. He's going to do that through Moses, but he meets him uh, there at a mountain. Uh, if you want to turn over to Exodus 19, we will actually read from that here in just a moment. Before that, here in uh, Exodus 15, verse 7, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. There's this language talking about mountain being the place where the Lord dwells. Hey, now, you might hear that and go, yeah, but God's God overall, and he's everywhere, and um, omniscient, and omnipresent, and all of these things. Okay, sure, but the language that we are seeing is their understanding of how God worked. That was their understanding of how all gods worked, all across all of these cultures. So this idea that God is dwelling on a mountain, that that's where his home, his sanctuary is, common. That's the belief. Okay. Uh, Exodus 19, 12 through 20. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. 
When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Okay, so here's this, here's this giving of the, the law. The Ten Commandments come in our, our next chapter. Moses is allowed to go have this conversation with God, but nobody else better come anywhere near the mountain. And we have this, the Lord descended on the mountain, and there's all this, uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, theatrics, right? There's smoke and flame and light, and it's just, it's terrifying. And everybody is terrified about what in the world is going on here. Uh, and Moses is going up the mountain. It's no wonder that they thought, all right, well, he's dead. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and do whatever we want. Uh, because this is, a, this is a terrifying scene. But it's all taking place on a mountain. And more than that, the thing that's going to take place on this mountain is the giving of this is who my people should be. You want to give that kind of, of instruction on a mountain. I wonder if that happens in the New Testament anywhere uh, with Jesus. Okay, moving on from mountains. This is just Exodus. That was just Exodus. Uh, there are plenty of other mountain places. We will encounter them as we go along. That's the purpose of this kind of foundation here. We're going to see these places as we continue through the study. Uh, so anytime as we're reading through a section and we encounter a place, you can go, mountain. Yeah, it said mountain. We're here. Uh, and just be on the lookout for those things. Okay, gardens. In addition to mountains, the home of the gods, uh, were often gardens. The people of the ancient Near East lived in arid desert climates, for the most part, struggled to grow food and find water. And you wanted to build your cities around rivers. Uh, you wanted to have some kind of water system because that's, I mean, you had to be by rivers in order to make that happen uh, until much later on when there's, here's how we can transport water and make it available to everyone. Uh, so gardens then were the best possible thing. Okay, this place that is uh, flowing with, with water and everything that you could ever need uh, is growing just abundantly, and it's all there, great vegetation, all of this stuff. Uh, it's all provided for you. That would have been kind of the heaven idea of it's all here. It's all here. Uh, we don't have to transport water from a well. We don't have to dig a well out. We don't have to. It's just all here. It's all present. And so that's where the gods lived. They were in uh, these garden types of spaces. This is true in the Bible. This is also true outside of those cultures. Uh, Egyptian culture, a Mesopotamian culture, they, they had these beliefs about uh, the gods living in uh, well-watered garden areas where everything they needed uh, is all there. Gardens were the epitome of high living. Land of abundant growth and flourishing plant life would have been the best kind of life uh, desert dwellers could think of. Okay, it's important with this, and we have a few passages, though they're not uh, specifically laid out for us, uh, we'll read Isaiah uh, 33, if you want to turn over there. That mountains and gardens were often mixed.
a lot of the time in their description, it's not mountain or garden. I mean, sometimes we just have mountains, sometimes we just have garden language. But a lot of the time, these two things are mixed together. Uh, so a garden on a mountain sort of thing. Okay, the gods are living in, in both of those spaces. They have it all. Uh, this high place that has everything that they could need, that's where the gods are. Uh, the mountain of God is described as a place flowing with uh, water and vegetation. <laughs> Isaiah 33, uh, starting in verse 20, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord and majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. This uh, up on, on Zion, this it's not specifically called mountain here, uh, but often is referred to as a mountain. Here there are broad rivers and all these things. Everything that you can want is there. Uh, Ezekiel 47 is another place. Zechariah 14, Joel 3. There's just a number of prophets that refer to well-watered mountain areas uh, and bringing these two things together. Okay. I meant to have a separate page for you. I didn't, so hold me to it that I bring that to you next week. Um, you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. Let's move to temples. I know we were quick on gardens, but temples are going to include discussion of mountains and uh, gardens here. Temples. This is tabernacle. This is Solomon's temple. This is uh, all, all the temples that follow the second temple period, all this stuff. Temples were built a certain way. This is also true within other cultures. Uh, this is, I mean, they have a uh, temple, temple of heaven, I think is what it's called, uh, in China. I highlighted that on a sermon illustration like last year sometime, uh, so I remember it about that much. Uh, but the way that they structured things are, there are circles on the ground, and I believe then it's points at, uh, at the top, and that whole thing is an overlap of heaven and earth, which is interesting. Uh, the way that they built the building was to try to overlap physical and spiritual. What's spiritual they're thinking about? Not entirely sure, but that's their goal. And that's true within cultures. That temple is still there. Uh, you can go see it. Okay. Uh, this is in 1 Kings 6, talking about Solomon's description of the temple, how this thing's being built. Note the language. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner rooms and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lentil and doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Okay, if you've never really read through the description of the temple, uh, outside of maybe just uh, having it as a signed reading in some way, uh, it can be very easy to kind of blow through it because it's extremely repetitive. Even the section that we have here repeats this phrase three times and that phrase keeps coming. Like the, this idea is just there. 
Uh, it's extremely repetitive, but there is a purpose for that repetition, as difficult as that may be to, to read through. Uh, and part of the purpose of that, uh, ex, uh, of that repetition uh, is to show not just the, the detail uh, that the temple was built with, the extreme lengths that Solomon went to to make sure that this thing was built as perfectly as possible, I mean, even the description of the gold was evenly applied. Like, they, they made sure, okay, if we're going to have this much here, we need to have this much here because this is the temple of God. And so we're going to build this this way. Uh, you have a great description of one of the craftsmen that needs to say, this guy is regarded as having been gifted by God himself to craft things. That's who we want for the temple. Because this was such an important piece of architecture for the Israelites. But then this phrase keeps coming up, and this is an important part too. Cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. What does that sound like? Garden. Yeah, it sounds like a garden. Does it sound like a garden that we are familiar with? Okay, yeah, because there's, now we don't have specified palm trees and that sort of thing, but it's garden language, right? But this cherubim idea as well. Uh, when they're sent out, the cherubim image we're given is not a great one, <laughs> uh, guarding uh, the, the gate here. Uh, but we have that uh, angelic being, a spiritual being, serving God, uh, associated with this garden place. Uh, and the temple, in some ways, with its engravings and on the doors and inside and all this, if you're walking through the temple, you're constantly being reminded of the garden, the Garden of Eden, God's garden where he is, uh, and all of this. That was which, perfect. Yeah, it was this perfect creation of God, and it's described as this great garden place. Uh, and it is how our Bibles end as well, with the description of the garden. Why, why is that such a big deal? Because that was, that was the language you used to talk about where God was. That's, that's the best possible place. Now... The place, or the way that the Bible differs greatly from other uh, mythological things is God wants everybody there. Uh, and the God that we see descending from this beautiful garden place is not one who's coming down just to, I'll do things on my own terms and I'm going to mess with you people for fun and I'm going to do whatever I want. It's God caring for uh, his creation and all of this. Okay. Uh, not only are we given garden uh, vegetation imagery here, palm trees and open flowers, we're repeatedly invited into the spiritual world in the garden with the mention of cherubim with all of this. Uh, the uh, page I meant to have alongside this that I will bring next week uh, walks, through, uh, walks through the tabernacle, which is true of the temple as well, uh, but the tabernacle and the creation and those elements that exist within the tabernacle that they were supposed to build were meant to kind of mimic a walking through the garden sort of idea. Okay, the point of that is to say, uh, God wanted his people not just to be thinking about him, but to be thinking about the perfect creation, the creation as he intended it to be, because as God's people, they're a part of going and carrying, being who his creation is supposed to be. Okay, so you have this reminder of, this is how I made it to be. This is who you're supposed to be. And in this place is where we're going to you know, deal with the sin, right that wrong, get you back where you need to be, uh, and all of that. Okay, top of page three. 
Uh, just like the surrounding cultures, God uses language of mountains and gardens as his sacred space. Unlike the gods in other cultures, Yahweh, the God of Israel, invites us into those sacred spaces to join him on the mountain, in the garden, uh, or in his presence, as is something we'll see uh, quite often throughout our text. Okay, let's talk about the wilderness. Where's my phone? How much time do we have? 45? Is that when I'm out of here? Okay, great. We have, we have time. Okay, wilderness. Uh, outside the mountain, garden, and temple of God lies the wilderness. Okay, so you have all these people living in desert areas. The last thing that, the last place that they would want to be is a place that's more desert than the desert spot that they're currently living in. The wilderness is worse. Okay, there's nothing out there. Uh, it's isolated. Everything's dead. That's, that's the wilderness. So the wilderness is not a good place to be uh, and is associated often with, with evil, uh, as we'll see here in a moment. Uh, mountains and gardens are a place of growth and beauty. The wilderness is dead and empty. The temple is where God's presence dwelt, as is so often said. Uh, Exodus 40 is a good example. God was in the midst of the people of Israel. Okay, think about uh, the tabernacle where God's presence is as they're going through the wilderness. And they are arranged in a certain way with the tabernacle sitting there at the center. Uh, they are given laws in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. They're given these laws about how their operating should work. Uh, and there is language that has to deal with the camp uh, and the wilderness. The wilderness is not where they want to be, that they are in the wilderness, but they can pass through the wilderness just fine if they will remain with God. Now, they chose not to, and so a whole generation dies in the wilderness, uh, but the next generation is faithful through uh, all of this in the wilderness and then is delivered to the land flowing with milk and honey. That's very much garden language again. Okay, let's talk about outside the camp here with wilderness. Uh, Leviticus 13, 46, uh, about lepers. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp, okay, away from away from the, the tabernacle, away from the people, we need to keep him separated uh, with this disease that has the potential to spread through uh, the camp. Here, we don't want something like that uh, to spread through the creation. We don't want that kind of, this is not how God intended it to work, to go through, is kind of the, the broader idea. Numbers 5, 1 through 4, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel, that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. The whole idea with this is that the place where the tabernacle is and the camp, this, this place walking with God, needs to be kept uh, holy Clean all of because this is where God is. That's what he wants around him. Go ahead. Now, with these people put outside the camp, are they given tents and food? I would assume so. Says, I'm not entirely sure. I would assume so. I don't think they're left for dead because there is opportunity to return. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think they're left alone, but they have to be put okay. out uh, so that this disease doesn't spread. Um all of this is giving us this kind of Isaiah idea when he's in the throne room of God. That's a spiritual scene. Uh, he's in this throne room of God and says, Woe to me, I'm 
uh, a man of unclean lips, uh, and he is cleansed of that so that he can be within the presence of God, which is you know removing sin so that you can be in the presence of a holy God. That's what this is. We've got to remove... I'm not saying that leprosy is a sin, uh, but it's this consequence of sinful world. We have to remove that out. That's not what God is looking for until they can come back in. It's just the general idea uh, of this holy before a holy God. That's what the camp is supposed to be. Okay, weird passage. We have five minutes. Uh, Leviticus 16. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And when he has made the end of anointing for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay, so just this interesting practice uh, here around the, the Day of Atonement and all of this has to do with we're going to put the sin of the people onto this thing and send it out away from the camp. Okay, that's the the most immediate thing here, uh, send it out of the camp. Sin does not belong here uh, in the presence of God. That's the most immediate teaching of all that. But the phrasing is interesting too. Uh, for Azazel is used twice. Uh, send away into the wilderness to Azazel. You might be looking at that and going, what is that? Uh, and then maybe you're going, well, that means scapegoat. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Uh who is Azazel is the question that we would ask. The, the answer that's often given is it's a, a scapegoat. He literally is a scapegoat. The sins of somebody else are placed on him, and it's also a goat. So, I mean, just really, in every possible way, this is a goat. Uh, it's sent out into uh, the wilderness for the sake of the people. Uh, and it can be translated that sort of way. However, uh, the, that doesn't remove the, the language. Uh, of the for something. Uh, so if you even want to put it as scapegoat, it would still be for scapegoat, which doesn't, that seems like more of a problem than what we had before. Uh, you have the same language with Yahweh. For Yahweh uh, is said in that passage. For Azazel, it's the same uh, breakdown. You have the Hebrew there. Uh, Lamed El Adonai, Lamed Azaz El uh, is how that is. So for this thing. Well, one of them is Yahweh, <clears throat> and then you have this other term. In Jewish belief, and this is where we're going to get into a book that's not in your Bible, shouldn't be because it's not inspired. However, it does reveal, as we talked about last week, the mind of the Jewish person, how, how they believed all of this stuff worked. Let's read it about middle of page four there. This is from 1 Enoch 2.8. Okay, this is how they thought about all this. This is one of the rebellious angels as far as the Jews were concerned. Notice his name. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates, and make known to them the metals of the earth, the art of working them, bracelets and ornaments, the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids, 
and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures, and there arose much godlessness. They committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all of their ways. Now, whether you want to read that and go, that's definitely not who this is, we have to start first with, this would have been the Jewish idea of who this individual is. Wilderness is a bad place. We're going to send our sins out of the camp into the wilderness, and the language that's used is for something else. And in the Jewish mind, this something else was very evil, uh, had led creation astray at one point, uh, and you know, let's send the goat off out here. If we, if we looked more into some Hebrew kind of history, uh, they would often take this goat and not let it roam free. They would toss it over the edge of a cliff because uh, we want our sins to be taken care of. That was the idea. Okay, but nobody wanted to be in the wilderness. The wilderness is where bad things took place. The wilderness was where evil spiritual <laughs> beings dwelt and where you had encounters with those types of beings. That was their belief. Okay, now, it's going to be a while from now, but when we talk about Jesus, he's going to find himself in the wilderness like the people of Israel, and he's going to have an encounter with an evil spiritual being. The idea itself is not without merit. It's presented again in the New Testament. Uh, but this is their belief. Wilderness is a bad place. Uh, and whether you want to go this far to say that's that this thing is here and that's all going on, here's the point. When you see mountains and gardens, our thought should be, okay, what's happening here? Why is it a mountain that this is taking place on? Does that have some spiritual significance? When you see wilderness come up, your thought should be, oh, there's that's not great. Are there some bad spiritual things happening here with the wilderness? Because wilderness is the place where they thought bad spiritual things happened. As we go through our lessons, these places are going to pop up quite a bit. Uh, pay attention to them. Point them out uh, as we go through. I'll point some out, but not all of them. Uh, so point them out. We'll start next week. Uh, if you'll read Genesis 2 and 3, we'll talk about where... Well, here's some questions. Where does this <clears throat> evil spiritual being of Genesis 3 come from? Because it's just there. So where does it come from? Love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and how does this evil spiritual being deceive Eve? It's a little easier of a question, uh, but still important for us. So we'll be in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, talk about evil stuff, Nephilim, all that sort of good thing. Uh, let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this day and pray that we have a great day of worship. We pray that we uh, come to you not, uh, not getting rid of uh, the things that we are dealing with in this world, uh, but that we bring those things to you, allow you to have those things, know that you love us greatly uh, and are always working uh, to bring about good in our lives. God, we thank you for this time of study of the spiritual realm, of the sacred places uh, that uh, existed, uh, that exist, that uh, they talk about so often throughout the Bible. Help us to be mindful of the places that we go, uh, the things that we talk about, uh, and the things that uh, go on in the world around us. Help us to be ready uh, as your kingdom uh, to bring about uh, healing and redemption uh, in this broken world. God, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.